0: Hey, Crossings Podcast Community. This teaching is called Getting Your Breath Back and is the fourth and final teaching in our Reading Between the Testaments series. It was taught by Molly Conaway on July seventeenth, 2022. Thanks for listening. One of the more well-known stories in this intertestamental period, is what it's called, is the story we're going to read today about a mother and her seven sons. It's in a book called 2nd Maccabees. So if you've ever seen a Bible with the Apocrypha in it, so Catholic Bibles have the Apocrypha in it, 2nd Maccabees is in the Apocrypha. And it gives us some important history of Israel between around 180 and 161 BC. So these were God's people, uh, the people God had made promises to, this family that had made promises to God. You know, we say all the time that the Bible is one story from beginning to end of God putting his family back together. Today's story that we're going to read is is part of that. It connects some dots of that whole story, though it doesn't even show up in the Bibles that we have. And and the history that we're going to get today is not boring history. It's actually called pathetic history. Some scholars call it pathetic history, especially 2 Maccabees, One scholar says, pathetic history is where the author strives to entertain his reader by playing strongly upon the emotions with vivid portrayals of atrocities and heroisms and divine manifestations with the copious use of sensational language and rhetoric, especially when presenting the feelings of characters. The story we're gonna read today is incredibly violent it's incredibly gruesome. This is your warning, just so you know. I, so, you, I don't know, you, many of you may or may not know me. I have like a PG rating when it comes to movies. I do not do violence. Like um, Wreck-It Ralph, I was watching Wreck-It Ralph with my kids the other day. I could hardly watch it. And they were just like, I don't know what's going on. But I, I can't do violence, I can't do gore, I can't do it. Um, if, I even have like nightmares about previews I've seen, like commercials that come on, I freak out. Uh, If this text that we're about to read today, this story, was a movie, there is no way I would watch it, just so you know. So, if when I start reading this text, I get really, like, uncomfortable and nervous and start reading the violent parts really fast. It's because I am. So, um, I think it's good to remember, though, that violence isn't uncommon in our Bibles, like it's everywhere. (laughs) Uh, The whole story is based around a man hanging by nails. Uh, on on some pieces of wood. This isn't like Tarantino stuff, where it's glorifying the violence. The author wants the reader to feel something, to grasp the depth of how tragic and incredibly violent things were. So yes, the stories in the Bible are violent, and sadly, so is our world. So the mother and her seven sons. Uh, Is this a real story, or is this a fictional story? Yes. Um, likely this story is based off real events. It is likely that something like this story happened in this time. We actually see verses in our Bibles that point to this story. So in Jeremiah 15, it says, She who bore seven, so a mother and seven sons, has languished. She has swooned away. Her son went down while it was yet day. She has been shamed and disgraced. In First Samuel, it says the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. So there's, there's hints of this story of a mother with seven sons all over scripture. Last thing to remember before we actually read it. Uh, You may know this number seven uh, is kind of a holy, divine, it's like a special number. When we see the number seven in our Bibles, it it means pay attention. Uh, This number references some sort of completion, some sort of divine wholeness, Uh, seven days to create the world. It's all over the place. So when we read this mother had seven sons, we're supposed to read, it's not just like a mother and her only child. It's not even just like a mother and her children. It's like a mother and all the children, okay? Some sort of completion, some sort of wholeness. I, I already told you that they all die, so this is like a total loss, like in a cosmic way. So who's ready to read about death and suffering and tragedy? Yeah, okay. Second uh, Maccabees, verse 1. It happened also that the seven brothers and their mother were arrested and were being compelled by the king, the king's name was Antiochus, under torture with whips and straps to partake of unlawful pig's flesh, which is totally against Jewish custom. One of them, acting as their spokesman, said, What do you intend to ask and learn from us? For we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors." So this text is pointing to a time in Jewish history during the Hellenizing of Jerusalem. Hellenizing is just this fancy word that that means Greek culture and language and customs were spreading through the ancient Near East. So Israel was navigating a life in a world where some people wanted to participate in the Greek customs and culture, and they wanted the political power that they could accumulate by bending to these Greek influences. And the Torah, the Jewish law, had always acted as both a religious and a political document. So on one end, there's this group of people trying to replace the Torah as a political document. They were picking and choosing which Jewish laws would stay and which ones wouldn't. They wanted to know which Jewish laws they could give up and still remain Jewish and also have the political power that that would come with. And at the other end, there were the fundamentalists and most people were somewhere in the middle. But Greek influence, Greek culture, Greek custom was coming into play, there was no stopping it and it challenged uh, the Jewish people to think about what is it that they they were standing for. And people were negotiating what it meant Uh, to follow the Torah as a religious document, but not as a political document, okay? And there were some people who still believed that they were called to a life of theocracy, where God was their ruler and the Torah was their constitution. That's likely the case for this mother and her seven sons. So the mother and the sons are arrested. They're being forced to conform to the Greek customs, ones that strictly were against their Jewish law, that these promises that their ancestors had made with God, they're not going to eat the pig. This was strictly prohibited. So 2 Maccabees, chapter 7, verse 3. The king fell into a rage and gave orders to have pans and cauldrons heated. These were heated immediately, and he commanded that the tongue of their spokesman be cut out and that they scalp him and cut off his hands and feet, while the rest of the brothers and the mother looked on. When he was utterly helpless, the king ordered them to take him to the fire, still breathing, and to fry him in a pan. Mm. The smoke from the pan spread widely, but the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die nobly, saying, The Lord God is watching over us, and in truth has compassion on us. As Moses declared in his song that bore witness against the people to their faces when he said, And he will have compassion on his servants. So this first brother is actually quoting a prayer from Deuteronomy 32. And you may be thinking, wow, this is a really horrible story. I wonder what happens to the other six brothers. Let me tell you what happens. Verse 7. After the first brother had died this way, they brought forward the second for their sport. They tore off the skin of his head, and with the hair he asked him, will you eat rather than have your body punished limb by limb? He replied in the language of his ancestors and said to them, No, therefore he in turn underwent tortures as the first brother had done. And when he was at his last breath, he said, You accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life. But the king of the universe will raise us up to a renewal of everlasting life because we have died for his laws. So I'm gonna spare you, but I'm mostly gonna spare myself from having to read the details of the next five brothers, all right? If you're into graphic violent things, I completely judge you. You're welcome to go read it on your own. Basically, they're all tortured the same way in like frying pans. Um, But what I want us to look at is I want us to look at what each of these seven brothers said on their way out. Okay, so we're gonna add brothers one and two here. This is gonna kind of be a lot of text on the screen. But I want to read what Brother 3 through 6's responses were before they die. So Brother 3, he stretches out his hands and says, I got these from heaven, and because of his laws I disdain them, and from him I hope to get them back again. Brother 4 says, One cannot but choose to die at the hands of mortals and to cherish the hope God gives of being raised again by him. But for you... This is to King Antiochus, there will be no resurrection to life. Brother Five, because you have authority among mortals, though you are also mortal, you do what you please. But do not think that God has forsaken our people. Keep on and see how his mighty power will torture you and your descendants. Brother Six, do not deceive yourself in vain. For we are suffering these things on our own account because of our sins against God. But do not think that you, again, to the king, will go unpunished for having tried and to fight against God. Um, so before we get to Brother 7, leave these up uh, for a minute, Katie. Before we get to Brother 7, I'd like you to turn to your neighbor and tell them what your last words would be before you're thrown into a frying pan. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Um <laughs> So here are the themes, here, here are the themes I notice in these. Themes I notice, brothers 4, 5, and 6 all have something to do with telling the king how the king will be punished. Uh, brothers 2, 3, and 4, and you can pay attention, I'd love to know kind of what themes you find in these also. Brothers 2, 3, and 4 mention some kind of like life after death. Uh, there's mention in here about God's compassion, God's mercy. Uh, there, there's some mention in here about how, yes, we as a people have sinned against God, but you, Antiochus, have really sinned against God. And then there's this break between Brother 6 and 7. You can see that Brother 7 is not up here yet. It's actually brilliant storytelling. The author is saying before we get to Brother 7, before there's like complete loss, We need to we need to learn some things. There's some details. Who who haven't we heard from in the story yet, other than Brother Seven, the mom? We haven't heard from the mother, right? Verse twenty. The mother was especially admirable and worthy of honorable memory. Although she saw her seven sons perish within a single day, she bore it with courage because of her hope in the Lord. She encouraged each one of them in the language of their ancestors. Filled with a noble spirit, she reinforced her woman's reasoning with a man's courage. There's some jokes I could make, but I'm not going to. Basically, this woman controlled the room. And she said to them, I do not know how you came into being in my womb. It was not I who gave you life and breath, nor I who set in order the elements within each of you. Therefore, the creator of the world who shaped the beginning of humankind and devised the origin of all things, in his mercy gives life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of his laws. Pay attention to that part in yellow, we'll come back to it. Antiochus felt that he was being treated with contempt, and that she was suspic- And he was suspicious of her reproachful tone. So remember, Antiochus didn't even know what she was saying. He did not speak her language, and she wasn't even talking to him. Yet somehow his feelings were hurt um, because of her wisdom, and her courage, and her strength. She was totally intimidating the king. It turns out we have images of this woman at this time. Um, this is. So, so, Just kidding. That's Beyonce, if you don't know. Um, And it's interesting. One commentator points out the way in this whole story the mother never actually speaks directly to the king, uh, only to her sons. And that continues to the end of the story. All right, let's keep going. The youngest brother, brother seven, still being alive, Antiochus not only appealed to him in words, but promised with oaths that he would make him rich and enviable if he would turn from the ways of his ancestors, and that he would take him for his friend and entrust him with public affairs. Since the young man would not listen to him at all, the king called the mother to him and urged her to advise the youth to save himself. After much urging on his part, she undertook to persuade her son. I already ruined it for you, but I think we're supposed to feel some suspense. Like, what does the mother do? Does she convince him to go to the king or does she convince him to stick with the laws of their ancestors? But leaning in close, she spoke in their native language as follows. Deriding the cruel tyrant. My son, have pity on me. I carried you nine months in my womb and nursed you for three years and have reared you and brought you up to this point in your life and have taken care of you. I beg you, my child, to look at the heaven and the earth and see everything that is in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. And in the same way, the human race came into being. Do not fear this butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death so that in God's mercy, I may get you back again along with your brothers. These moments are so tender. Leaning in close to him, she spoke. "'My son, have pity on me.'" The mother is speaking to each of these sons in a language that only they knew. I hope you're picking up on this idea that the mother had this deep belief that she will see her sons again. For her, something existed greater than death itself. Story's almost over. Hang with me. While she was still speaking... The young man said, what are you waiting for? I will not obey the king's command, but I obey the command of the law that was given to our ancestors through Moses. But you, who have contrived all sorts of evil against the Hebrews, will certainly not escape the hands of God. For we are suffering because of our own sins, and if our living Lord is angry for a little while to rebuke and discipline us, he will again be reconciled with his own servants. But you, unholy wretch, you most defiled of all mortals, do not be elated in vain and puffed up by uncertain hopes when you raise your hand against the children of heaven. You have not yet escaped the judgment of the almighty all-seeing God. For our brothers, after enduring a brief suffering for everlasting life, have fallen under God's covenant. But you, by the judgment of God, will receive just punishment for your arrogance I, like my brothers, give up body and life for the laws of our ancestors, appealing to God to show mercy to our nation and by trials and plagues to make you confess that he alone is God. And through me and my brothers to bring to an end the wrath of the Almighty that has justly fallen over our whole nation. And this is the last page of the story. The king fell into a rage and handled him worse than all the others being exasperated at his scorn so he died in all his integrity putting his whole trust in the lord last of all the mother died after her sons it really says that i didn't cut out any gory details that's all it says <laughs> here's the best part let this be enough then about the eating of sacrifices and extreme tortures i agree So for those of you who who follow along with the big picture of the history of Israel, what's going on historically at the time, what's interesting is this event is actually the turning point in the story. It's like the climax of the bigger story. This is the height of Antiochus' cruelty. It's the turning point in the historical drama. True to the brothers' predictions, right after this episode, the Jews take their country back. Antiochus is struck down and is forced to confess to God. The story comes full circle immediately after this happens. So, why are we reading this story, (laughs) right? Why is this here? Why does it matter? Why did I say this is a pretty well-known story in the Apocrypha outside of it being very weird and very crazy? Stephen, you missed it. A bunch of people were burned in a frying pan. That's what you missed. Yeah, okay. So there's so much going on in this story. What helps us understand is the literary structure of how this story is told. This story is told in something called a chiastic form. It's a common tool, a chiasm is a common tool in ancient writings, especially in scripture, where you have two matching symmetrical ideas. So A1 and A2, kind of the same idea. They're located on opposite sides of the poem or of the story, and the ideas are presented in an order, and then they're repeated back in reverse order. Before the ideas are repeated back, so between D1 and D2, you generally have some sort of idea that stands alone in the center. This center idea is the the part that's supposed to be emphasized, like this is the point of this whole thing, all right? He, the, the, the story in 2 Maccabees 7 is a chiasm. I think the next, if you're actually interested in how this is all laid out, you can see the, the, how it builds and then how it goes back. The center line, the most important line, is the line in 2 Maccabees seven twenty three, 23. That, that part that was in yellow that says, therefore, this is the line that the mother says to her son. This is what we're supposed to get out of this whole story. Therefore, the creator of the world Who shaped the beginning of humankind and brought about the origin of all things, in his mercy gives life and breath back to you again. I want to read that again. Hear this for yourself. Therefore, the creator of the world, who shaped the beginning of humankind and brought about the origin of all things, in his mercy, gives life and breath back to you again. Another way to put it, God will heal what the king has hurt. God will bring life to those the king has killed. What God created, God will recreate, despite the king's attempt to destroy it. All this death, all this violence, it points us back to the creator of the world, who from the beginning, from nothing, shaped the animals and the trees and the mountains and the rivers and the children. And for the theology nerds in the room, this is where that reference to creatio ex nihilo comes from, the the creation out of nothing. This is where we get hints of that. This is where where we get that idea from a story that's not even in our Bibles, this creation out of nothing. And that creator, despite the situation, despite the suffering, despite the violence, despite the cruelty, that creator is merciful. It's compassionate and forgiving and gives relief and gives life and gives back breath again and again again. And again, in a place where all seems to have been lost, God reminds God's people to, like, take a deep breath. <laughs> in his mercy, he gives life and breath back to you again. Have you ever been reminded, like, to take a deep breath? Like, a good one, like, in through your nose, like, big belly breath, and you remember, oh, wow, I think it's been a long time since I've took, taken a deep breath like that. Like, like the busyness and distractions of our world, the anxiety of our world, literally like f- helps us uh, forget to breathe. And, and I sometimes think one of the most holy, worshipful, prayerful things we can do is take a deep breath. As a reminder of where our breath comes from. It's like a little act of resurrection. And So when you look at what sustained the mother and her seven sons, when we look at everything that they said before they died, it was this sense that, that their suffering, the suffering of this world, was not cause for their concern. You now I said that there's uh, hints of this story all over our scriptures. In the New Testament, in Hebrews 11, you may remember this is like called the Hall of Faith. It points to something like this. In Hebrews 11:35, it says, "'Women received their dead by resurrection. "'Others were tortured.'" refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. And the mother and her sons believed with everything in them that where there was death, there would be new life, spiritually and physically. The son like literally said, take these hands, I will get them back again. It's here in this obscure story in the Apocrypha, between the Testaments, that we find our first Jewish Old Testament early writings about resurrection, long before the life and death and resurrection of Christ. This whole event this hinges on this, us as followers of Jesus. I mean, I hope that if followers of Jesus are known for ever, anything, it has something to do with being present and standing for and standing alongside those who are suffering, knowing that maybe not now. But maybe someday, because of the mercy and life of Christ, life and breath will return again. Stanley Hauerwas says, the movement that Jesus begins is constituted by people who believe that they have all the time in the world, made possible by God's patience, to challenge the world's impatient violence by cross, by suffering, and resurrection. This is an interesting story to tell. We get to tell this story. We get to live this story in whatever creative and interesting ways God invites us into. You know, we, uh, several of us just got back late last night from a, a civil rights tour in the past few days, Memphis, Birmingham, Montgomery. Um, It was good. It was good that we were there. It was hard, but it was good. And I just kept thinking about the way the black church sustained itself for hundreds and hundreds of years, despite their struggle, despite the violence, despite the abuse. I'm like, oh yeah, Molly, what do you stand for? It was the church that sustained them. It was the reminder of hope and resurrection of Christ that sustained them. I mean, I I can't think of a more interesting and creative strategy that god has to work all this out in the world than through the church a way of life in the world that doesn't happen through force or coercion or governmental action The, the church is here to serve the world by showing the world something it's not a place where god is forming a family out of strangers you know, there's this table we come to every week. Um, you may know it as communion, Holy Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. We call it common meal. And, and everyone's invited to this table every week. And, and we come from all these different places, all these different experiences and beliefs and ways of seeing the world. We come to this table with all kinds of joys, with all kinds of sufferings. And literally, we, we come up to the table like a family would. And because we're all invited to this table and because we've agreed to pull up a seat, it forms us into this family. And knowing that you all come from different places in your lives, knowing that we all likely disagree on very big things, the way we come to this table with our brokenness, the way we come to this table in our forgiveness, the way we come to this table reminding each other that, that, hey, someday you'll, you'll get your breath back. And we take this bread and we take this wine, a meal packed with meaning about suffering and new life. I, I don't know about you, but, but this is an interesting story to tell. And so we invite you, uh, whenever you're ready to come up, uh, we'll take the bread and dip it in the wine. There's gluten-free crackers if you'd like that instead of uh, bread, and there's grape juice if you'd like that instead of wine. Uh, just let us know. But, but whenever you're ready, we do invite you uh, to come wherever you find yourself today.